Muito obrigado. Portuguese for thank you. <laughs> it's good to be back here, especially in this Church of Jesus Christ of the Forgotten Thai Saints. I was recently in New England, and uh, they certainly haven't forgotten the tie over there. <clears throat> or it could have been with uh, Brad Barshaw in Hawaii a couple of years ago where he preached in shorts. And, the, and there were no walls. Uh, the, 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 the walls just folded out, and it was wide open. That's Hawaii for you. Good to be with you folks again. Thank you uh, for what you folks have had and a part in our ministry and continue to play in our ministry and uh, how God is blessing that. Thank you, thank you, from the bottom of my heart. Father, we come to you this morning. We beg you, Lord, to open our minds to capture, our eyes to see your word and our ears to hear it, that you might change our hearts and our souls and our minds, Father, that we might become more and more like Jesus Christ, that we might be able to see the world as you see it, Lord. And somehow be a part of what you're doing. Thank you. For this hour is yours in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A number of years ago, I just heard this story not too long ago, and it kind of fits well with the context. Um, a, a couple were going on a cruise from Seattle to Anchorage, Alaska, and all that inland passageway and all of that stuff. And, and, uh, you have to understand a little about this couple. Uh, the husband uh, is a bit submissive, and the wife, very controlling. And uh, partway into this cruise, they ran into a rather severe storm. And the wife is a nervous type, as well as being a, a control nut, you could call it. And uh, she begins telling her husband, hey, right there by the phone, it says, if we have any questions, we have a right to call the bridge and talk directly to the captain. Says, I think I'm going to call a captain. I I'm nervous about this storm. I want to know some answers to some questions. Well, he's like, no, 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 you don't want to do that. No, 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 no. And oh, yeah. No. Well, finally, she calls. And of course, the steward answers up there in the, in the, in the, on the bridge and says, ma'am, the captain's really busy right now. But if, if you'd like to share your questions with me, I, I assure you that I will pass your questions on to the captain. And the captain will answer them. Well, this lady launched into a whole litany that took almost five minutes of questions. You know, everything from if we're, if we're forced to go into port, will somebody cover our airfare back home? Will, and it just went on and on and on. And uh, at the end of it, the, the, the steward says, Now, ma'am, I assure you I will pass your questions on to the captain, and the captain will have an answer for you. Would you just sit back and relax for about 15 minutes? So 15 minutes later, the phone rings, and... The steward's there again. He says, ma'am, ma'am, the captain has just two things he'd like to say to you. First, go to sleep. He wants you to understand that he knows these waters. He has been sailing this for over 20-some years. He understands where we are. So, ma'am, go to sleep. And number two, the captain wants you to know 
that the ship was built with this kind of storm in mind. So rest easy, man. You see, the captain is really busy right now. And he figures that it's best that both of us don't stay up all night. Just he will be. You, ma'am, rest easy and go to sleep. I think that kind of sets the stage for the passage I want to look at this morning. It's found in Matthew 8, in verse 23 through 27. I think all of us know the story, at least from Sunday school or from who knows where, uh, Jesus calming the storm. I want you to understand as we look at this passage that storms will happen in our lives. It is a reality. James 1 and verse 2 says, Count it all joy when you fall into various, what? Trials. It didn't say, count it all joy if you fall. What is the verbiage there? When. It's not an if, but you will encounter storms. And God has designed our faith in our lives to weather those storms. We can rest easy because our faith is built with these storms in mind. So let us look a little more closely. I want you to understand something as we look at the passage. The punchline isn't Jesus calming the storm. It's never about the storms. The punchline is verse 27, where it says, The men were amazed and asked, What? kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. In another passage it says they fell down and worshipped. So let's look a little more closely. These storms are made so that we might be amazed in Jesus Christ. The bit of context to this passage you find in Matthew 8 and 9 a series of miracles that Jesus does. It begins with the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where you see the following words. Uh, that would be in the uh, end of chapter 7, 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. And what, what Matthew begins to do is paint this picture through these miracles of a man in authority. And he starts with the authority over the message. And then he moves to Jesus' authority over the body. You see that in, in eight, chapter 8, 1 through 4, and the healing of the leper. You see it in 8, 5 through 13 with the centurion servant. You see it in the 14 through 7 where he heals many. And then he climaxes that with healing Peter's mother-in-law. And, and you've got to love that passage. You know, she instantly gets up and begins to serve them. It shows his authority next over the elements. And that's the passage we'll look at today. Where in 8, 23 through 27, Jesus calms the storm. Then it goes into his, his authority over demons in chapter 8, verse 28 through 34. And the whole thing of the guy in the, in the cemetery and the pigs running into the lake. 
his authority over the demonic forces. And that kind of brings us into chapter 9 and 1 through 12, where it shows Jesus' authority over the souls in the healing of the paralytic. This is a series of sermons, and every one of these can be a sermon. I'm only focusing on this one today. But in this particular one of healing the paralytic, that guy didn't get up that morning and go, huh, I think I'll go see Jesus and get forgiven of my sins. No, he got up that morning wanting to be healed, and his four friends in incredible faith took him down there to be healed. And the first words out of Jesus when he sees the faith of his friends, mind you, he didn't say the faith of the paralytic. He said, when Jesus saw the faith of his friends, he said to the young man, your sins are forgiven you. His authority to forgive and to cleanse. That's the essence of that passage. And the whole argument with the Pharisees afterwards is, what authority and right do you have over that? And he says, just to show you, I have that authority, stand up and walk. And then it goes over his authority over death with the healing of Jairus' daughter in chapter 9, 18 through 27. Now I want you to understand something about the word in the Greek of, of authority here. There are two words in the Greek for this. One is dunamis and the other is exousius. Dunamis is from where we get the word dynamite. It's a powerful, explosive authority. The other is ultimate authority, and probably the best way to explain that would be to think of a football team. And on a football team, you may have a 350-pound defensive lineman whose sole goal is to blast through the line, knock down defensive, uh, or offensive players, and somehow sack the quarterback. That guy has dunamis, explosive authority on the field as he blows past defenders and tries to sack the quarterback. But there is a scrawny guy, maybe scrawny, I don't know, but there is a man on that field as well who probably doesn't have any of the weight or physical attributes of these athletes on the field, and yet he has exousius. He has ultimate authority. He is wearing a striped shirt and has a whistle in his mouth. And he can send that 350-pound lineman to the locker room. Even to the point of, through the system of authority, lock him out of playing football forever at the professional level. That's exousius. And the word that's used here is that. Jesus has ultimate authority. So keep all of this context in mind as we look at that. That should comfort our souls as we think of the storms of our own life. Next context is, where are they? They're on the Sea of Galilee. You have to understand, the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. The mountains that surround it are 3,300 feet above sea level. So we're talking about 4,000 foot of elevation difference between the Sea of Galilee and the mountains that surround it. It is it's such a location that literally the winds come between the mountains and funnel down onto the Sea of Galilee and create rather unique storms. But the verbiage in this passage and the words in this passage that are used, I'm not, this would not be verbs, these are, are adjectives. I'll have to get my grammar right here. Uh, in verse 24 of this passage, let's start with 23. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. 
I want you to understand something about the words here, furious storm. The word for furious is, is megas. It's the word from which we get our English word today, mega. Huge. And the word for the torment or the storm used here is the word seismus, from which we get the word seismic today. And you folks in California understand that really well. That word is used 14 times in the New Testament. This is the only place it's used in reference to a storm. It's always used in reference to an earthquake. So when you understand that, you realize this is no ordinary storm. This is a mega seismic. And we understand that it's no ordinary storm, not only from the use of the words here in the Greek, but also from the reaction of these hardened fishermen. It says, they were in great fear. You think these guys had been in a storm before on the Sea of Galilee? You bet. But they'd probably never seen anything quite like this one. They were in a mega seismic. Have you ever been there where your life felt utterly out of control? Mega seismists come at us totally off the calendar, completely unanticipated. A close friend of ours in Bolivia went for a wonderful day to a place called Espejillos, a series of ten waterfalls that fall into these beautiful crystal clear pools of water. Um, and in one instant, between one instant and another, their young daughter of five years old, beautiful little girl, just disappeared. It took them almost 12 hours to find her at the bottom of one of these pools of water hung up underneath rocks. That's a mega seismus. Some of you have faced that. Some of you have been in those situations. My neighbor down the road from us, his wife was having some problems, went to the doctor. Incredible virulent cancer. Six weeks later, she was gone. Those are mega seismus. How's your life been? 2010 was a mega seismic for my family. Um, it started with my daughter having a miscarriage. Five days later, my mom passed away in Bolivia. Turned out to be the worst economic nightmare of LACOM's history last year, 2010. We knew it was going to be bad. We were like 20% off in terms of finances and meeting our obligations all year. We had to pull in emergency funding. We discussed in our October board meetings, what ministries do we shut down? Where do we go? It was a year of, of tension and stress and agony for me. In August, we get a call. Our daughter's having neurological problems at Harvard and, and is in the Harvard Medical Center in emergency. Her body is completely out of control. Spasmus spasms coming to her where her feet would literally curl under like this backwards and her hands would just cramp like that and then instantly go inward like that and a complete loss of muscle control and my wife and daughter are just dashing over there to see what they can do to help with the two boys and, and what's going on and, and medical doctors are doing CAT scans and, and MRIs and they can't find anything they don't know what's going on my dad's illness throughout that time as well, kind of a result of, 
of um, mom's passing away and a number of other things that left him permanently walking with a cane now and, and peripheral neuropathy. In October, I get a call just as I'm about ready to move two days later into our annual board meetings, and my daughter says, Dad, come and get me. We and the kids have to get out of the house, and we've got to get out now. And divorce proceedings start as a husband who committed felonies in the name of my daughter, so much so that she can't even take out a checking account anywhere without her name being red flagged and her, and her social security number. Disasters. A friend defaulted on a sale of our property in Bolivia and left us with about a $50,000 debt. What do I do? That's mega seismus coming at you in a given year. But that... that that really doesn't cast a shadow, I think, sometimes on some of what you folks are facing. We had a scare with cancer with my wife throughout the year, too. That, praise God, came up negative in the end. Have you ever been there? Have you faced those kinds of things? It leads us to the question, how did we get there? And the answer to that question is, Jesus. Who took the disciples into the boat? Jesus got into the boat and the disciples followed him. How do we get here? Following Jesus. And let me explain. No amount of ministry can insulate you from the storms of life. No amount of tithing, no amount of prayer, no amount of living right, folks. And because if you believe that, I'm not sure what Bible you're reading. You see, have you ever thought of Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in green pastures beside the still waters. You know, and, and then you get to that rather a little bit disturbing passage. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But he is there. His rod, which is for punishment, and his staff, which is for rescuing, are there to comfort. How about Joseph? One storm after another in that man's life. And finally at the end of it, when God has brought him into the reign of the kingdom of Egypt, second in command of Pharaoh, and his brothers stand before him, and his words are, You meant it for harm. You meant the mega seismus in my life to harm me. God did it to save the world, to save many. And to save you. How about Job? He, he not only lost a business. But how would you like to have been the father who stood there in front of ten coffins? Your children. In one instant, gone. His response, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The storms you are in more than likely are not because you've done something wrong. Some occasionally are for discipline. But most of them, folks, are because God loves you so much that the lessons 
he wants you to learn can only come through the storms of life. He is preparing you, not for this life, but for the next. That may not be too comforting right now as you think about it. But I want you to get the right perspective on storms of life. My grandson, Landon, little four-year-old, kid's got more energy than I know what to do with, um, surprises me all the time. The other morning, he jumped in my bed at three in the morning, had to sleep with Papa. That's because Bugga, my wife, was out here in California teaching outdoor ed, and, and uh, I don't know, he thought that was the safest place to be in the middle of the night, I guess. <laughs> 6.30 in the morning. Now, this guy always wakes up at between 6 and 6.30. Drives us all nuts. Wakes up. Papa, Papa, the cat slept at my feet all night. I says, yeah, he does that right, but he won't sleep at my feet, I said. I make him into a flying cat if he does. He says, why, Papa? I says, because he's too fat and too heavy and he hurts my feet. Oh, Papa, the kitty's not fat. He's just a wiener cat. Like a wiener dog. You know, Papa? Oh, needless to say, I didn't sleep anymore. It was too funny. This little guy, though, teaches us a lesson. Landon is not afraid to ride a tricycle down our hill, 50 yards down the hill, and boom, and bail out before he hits the hedge at the bottom. He loves getting his Tonka truck out, you know, one of those great big yellow ones, and he sits in the Tonka truck with it aimed backwards picks up his feet, leans back, and goes racing down the hill in this Tonka truck. And just before he gets to the bottom of the hill, he bails out, does two or three somersaults, whatever, you know, the truck goes all the way into the hedge. And the kid's just laying out there on the grass. Ha, 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 ha. You know, he's having a blast. He's not afraid. But it came time to get him his shot for flu, for flu shot. And we take this little guy down there, and the nurse at the health department comes up with a flu shot, and the kid is absolutely hysterical. Why? Because all Landon can see at that moment is the needle. He can't see the long-term benefit of that tiny little prick. It's going to hurt for a tiny little bit, but it's going to help him long ways down the road. I think you get the, 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 where I'm going with this, don't you? Can we adults see past the needle? When the mega seismus hit us, are we focused on the needle and not on the long-term outcome? The question I have for you is, are you a child or are you an adult? in your Christian walk. Do you see Romans chapter 8 where it says, all things work together for good to them who are called according to his purposes? In the midst of the mega seismus, there is something good. So how do I gain that kind of perspective where I look past the needle? And i got to hurry here, folks. We're just about out of time with this. I want you to look at the passage in verse 24. There's something fascinating happening here. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake, so the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was what? Sleeping. 
The first thing I want you to do in a mega seismus is look to the sleeping Jesus. And that sounds a little ironic. Until you stop and realize that the sleeping Jesus shows us the storm cannot destroy him. Whatever storm you are in, it cannot destroy the creator of the storm. It cannot destroy the God or the, in which you have placed your faith. Look to the sleeping Jesus. Now that's not very comforting because there are times when you're in the midst of the storm. And last year was one of them. I went through the entire year, especially in the economics of our mission, praying, God, I, and not only is my corral wide open for the cattle on a thousand hills, but I tell you what, Lord, I took down the entire front fence and I can't explain why the cattle on a thousand hills are still walking past our little mission. Lord, can't you do something? I was facing what I look at now and say, huh, it was the sleeping Jesus. Where are you, Lord? We're about ready to close up ministries. And we're not the only one that's faced that. Most of the, the nonprofit missions in America today are, are about 20%, anywhere between 11 and 20% off in donations. And have had to make some serious cuts. But I want you to remember, in the midst of the storm, that Jesus cannot be destroyed by whatever storm you are facing. And your faith must be in him. Then I want you to look to the standing Jesus. It says he rose. And let's look at the passage. Disciples went and woke him and said, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. They're terrified. He replied, you of little faith. Why are you so afraid? Now, why would he say those words? Because he knows the storm cannot destroy him. Oh, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid of the mega seismus you're facing in life today? And then it says he got up, rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely, completely calm. Illustration of that is a little boy playing with a matchbox in a plane. He's flying, little trays down there, and he's... And the guy sitting beside him is getting increasingly nervous as they're going through turbulence, and it's up and down, and pretty soon they hit a, such a radical turbulence that the oxygen mask dropped out. And the little boy is still there. And finally the guy sitting next to him goes, Boy, little boy, why are you not afraid in the midst of all of this? And the little boy says, because the pilot is my daddy. He's not afraid because he knows the pilot. So in the midst of your storms, remind yourself who the pilot is. Colossians 1.17 tells us he is before all things. In him, everything holds together. The entire universe, your entire existence, your entire world is held together by Jesus Christ. Paul in the Areopagus in Acts 17 says it's in him that we live and move and have our very existence. Do you know the pilot? Have you trusted in him? Remember the standing Jesus. This text starts with a mega seismic and it actually ends with a mega 
calm. But that's not the end of the passage. Because as the text ends, it says, the men marveled, they were amazed, they glorified, and that's in a, in a different rendition of it, I believe it's in Luke, where they glorified Jesus. You see, the essence here isn't over the deliverance and the calming of the storm. It's over the deliverer from the storm. They became amazed at the man Jesus. My wife had to fly from the city of Santa Cruz to Concepcion. We were running the Bible Institute back in the late 80s. And uh, in order for, to spare them uh, having to ride in the Jeep for eight hours... <laughs> Uh, we threw them in this airplane, double-engine, twin-engine plane of a mission there. And at the same time, they were going to fly an Ayore Indian girl out of Concepcion who was deathly ill, who probably would not live through the night without a surgery for a blocked intestinal problem. As they got into this flight, they ran into a thunderstorm, a massive thunderstorm. And that plane was all over the sky. Those of us that were listening to the radio, hearing these two pilots, they were struggling with this plane. And... Um, then they said, well, our compass went out. And then a few other electronics, and at one point, the radio just disappeared. And I'm sitting there going, my entire family's on this plane. What's going on? It wasn't until the next day that I got the entire story. I knew some of the story, because in the end, we, that we heard, hey, we're on the ground in Concepcion, we're loading up the little Iore girl, and then we're flying back. And then we hear, you know, the nose wheel did not come up. Too much mud or something, we're not sure whether it's even secured in place. And I watched a brilliant missionary pilot land a plane at a little airstrip in Santa Cruz and never put the nose wheel on the ground until he was sitting in front of the hangar. I don't know how he did it. Talk about skill in flying and acceleration and control. And, and it held Loaded up that little Iota girl, got her into the hospital, surgery that night. She had blocked intestines from parasites and whatnot. She would not have lived to the next day. But what I found out afterwards was not, literally astounding. They had flown into the storm. Things were going wrong. They had no idea where they were, and that was one of the last things we heard from them before the radio went out. We're not sure where we are. And we're going to turn back and head back to Santa Cruz. So that would mean going through the storm again. And we can't see the ground. We really don't know where we're at. As they turned around and went back, all of a sudden, 20 minutes past where they should have been for Concepcion, they saw a hole in the clouds. And right below them was a road. And so they spiraled down through the hole to see if they could figure out where they were. And when they got down to the road, there was an airstrip in front of them, or at least the end of the airstrip. They still had no idea where they were because the rain was coming down in just sheets. And it wasn't until they got within 50 feet of the terminal that they discovered they were in Concepcion. Why do I share that with you? Because during that time, my wife and children are absolutely terrified. What's going on? But what we learned out of that and what we've learned out of these experiences in our lives is that Jesus can be trusted with the mega seismus of my life. He is enough. Is heaven enough for you? Is Jesus enough for you? Are you looking at the pilot? If you go to buy a diamond for a wedding, 
What's one of the things they do when you want to look at the diamonds? The jeweler will always spread out a black felt cloth and then place the diamond in the middle. Why? Because on that black backdrop, the brilliance of the diamond and the light that reflects through it is more clearly seen, it's more beautifully seen. I close with this thought. The brilliance of Jesus Christ will best shine through your life through the backdrop of the storms of your life. Jesus is preparing you for something out of this world. Rest in that promise. You were not made. You were never created for this fallen world. You were created for something more. And this fallen world has done something tragic to us. It has skewed our perspective. And Jesus, through the storms of our life, is preparing us for something far more beautiful. Know the pilot. Know that he knows the storm. Know that the storm cannot destroy him. And put your trust in him. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I have no idea who here this morning may be struggling, Lord, in some of the horrible storms of life. But I ask, Father, that you would comfort their hearts, their spirits in Jesus Christ this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you.